and welcome back to another episode of my weekly show. I'm Father Roderick, and I'm recording this on Thanksgiving. So happy Thanksgiving to all of you. Although I guess for most of you, Thanksgiving will be already over because I don't think that if you are preparing a turkey, you have time to listen to this show. <laughs> and of course, on this Thanksgiving day, a big thank you to my patrons over at patreon.com slash fatherroderick for supporting me with their financial donation every month. Do you know what's going on? This is what's happening in your world. They said Catholics rule. We got Boston, South America, the good part of Ireland, and we're making serious inroads in Mozambique, baby. You've taken your first step into a larger world. I've been kind of busy. That's why this show is a little bit later than normal. Uh, normally, I, I try to record this on Monday or Tuesday, but uh, this week I had to move it to Thursday morning, which is totally atypical for me. But the reason is that I've been uh, working about four days straight, long days, like 12 hours per day, on um, uh, the second part of my documentary about Ireland. And uh, just uh, to refresh your memory, that was based on footage that I shot with my then brand new uh, Asus Zenfone 6 that I'd taken on vacation. And I had just been filming a little bit you know, haphazardly, not really with a plan. And kind of halfway through that vacation, I'm starting to realize this is actually, this is good material for, for a TV episode. So I started to film a little bit more deliberately, but still completely out of order. Didn't really know how to turn that into a story. And then uh, just recently I had two gaps to fill, basically two, two episodes that I thought I would have produced and didn't go through. So I was like, well, maybe now it's time to go back to my Irish material and see if I can spin a story out of that. And while working on the first part, I realized, well, I have actually so much material that it would be a shame to put it all in one 20-minute episode. Why not do two parts? And that's how I got into trouble <laughs> because the big, the big problem with this uh, documentary is that it, the story had to be constructed after the fact. So I had a lot of different places that we visited, but some were related to prehistoric times in Ireland. Others were, you know, the the like the the Middle Ages and uh, monastic life. And then there were a lot of walks, just me climbing mountains. And uh, in order to to make it interesting to to watch, which is different from, let's say, an evening with your neighbors where you're going through your, uh, your, your latest holiday photos, I had to come up with a story that would connect all that material. And that was the kind of the biggest effort, but also a lot of fun to do. It's really storytelling in its core. It's uh, uh, looking at what you have and then trying to... It's like a big puzzle that was not really made as a puzzle. And you have to kind of glue the stuff together with a narrative. And that's what I've been writing. But in order to write a good story about Ireland, I had to do a lot of research as well. So I've been reading, I've been uh, browsing uh, all the time to to gather my data and make sure... Because there's all, this is television, so there are always people... Uh, that are much more knowledgeable about Ireland than I am, that are also watching this. So I have to get my facts straight. I can't bluff my way through this. Um, and then once you've written the story, uh, I have to record it. And this the second part, I had all the leftover material, basically. And and the what I I was thinking, I was like, what kind of story am I going to tell? The first, first part was about how the Irish Catholicism was actually... Uh, built on on religious roots that are much older that go back to prehistoric times and that these monks and like saint patrick for instance would take this uh, for instance his natural religion and uh, all the the imagery of the existing culture and transform that so for instance the the, the famous celtic cross that we know is a, is a good example of that according to legend Basically, in his catechesis, he would draw the sun, so a circle. He says, "That's you know that. That's what you worship as one of your gods. Well, and then he would uh, draw a cross through that. The actual, the sun refers to Jesus, and it's his cross and resurrection that are uh, saving you. And, and so he connected. He didn't suppress one image to supplant it with another one, but he merged the two together. So that Celtic cross is a good example of enculturation. And that's what the Catholic Church has always done through history. So that's kind of how I 
told the first part of the story. Um, and then I followed these pilgrims' tracks through the mountains, which was actually the reality. Every every mountain that I climbed had, had a pilgrims' uh, route that I was following. So that was part one. And then I had a lot of stuff about these monasteries being suppressed in the times of Henry VIII, of course, the famous or infamous king that broke up with uh, with the Pope because uh, the Pope didn't want to annul his first marriage. And as a revenge, he he basically broke off, uh, uh, broke with the Pope, with the Universal Catholic Church, and started his own local church, which became the, the Anglican Church. And then um, around that same time, or just before that, there had been the only English Pope that the uh, the world has ever had, and that English Pope handed over Ireland to um, the the English King back then, and so that's how first Ireland came under English rule, and then with Henry the Eighth actually suffered all the consequences of this fallout between Henry VIII and the Pope, and uh, I, I was amazed while doing my research. Uh, how huge the persecution has been. I mean, the, for instance, Henry VIII, the first thing that he did was to suppress all the monasteries. And so that, in the story, that enabled me to integrate a lot of the, the footage from monasteries, like ancient ruins of monasteries that we visited. So he suppressed it. Sometimes he burned them to the ground and by force tried to convert or had the monks convert to, well, Protestantism in, in the sense of Anglicanism. The Anglican faith, even though it has, in especially in the high church part of the Anglican church, has a lot of Catholic liturgical elements, but in its thinking, it's basically Protestants, like protesting against uh, the then current Catholic church. Um, so he he tried to uh, to to convince the monks to convert, but it was basically it's either you convert to the Anglican Church, or it's a death penalty. And so they, they killed a lot of monks, and, uh, and the persecution was real and pretty gruesome. And then uh, the English tried to colonize Ireland by sending uh, all sorts of local rulers, and, and they were uh, exploiting Ireland for their own gain. So uh, one of the connections that I was able to make was the exploitation of the rural countryside of Ireland for grain, basically. So in, instead of having this very di very diverse um, culture or agricultural uh, situation where they would have cattle and all sorts of different crops, uh, the Irish were forced to mainly grow grain, and that grain would go to England. Um, and the remainder was for the Irish, was basically potatoes. And so in the 19th century, there was a big potato disease and since there all the other uh, since it was a, now an agricultural monoculture with only grain they didn't have any flexibility there was no no margin anymore so once the 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 potato crops uh, uh, basically became a disaster for I think that was three or four years in a row it caused a massive uh, starvation I bore that a million more than a million people in Ireland died from famine. So it's called the Great Famine. And then another million Irish uh, uh, left their country. There was nothing to eat. So some of them ended up in, the, in North America. Others went to Australia. There were also a lot of Irish that, that uh, settled in England itself or went to mainland Europe. That's where, why there are so many different Irish families all over the world. It's basically caused by a disaster. It was migration, mass migration at the time. So that decimated the Irish population with 25%. Pretty incredible. And that added to that the on ongoing uh, suppression of, of the Catholic faith. And even though that all that happened, the, the Irish uh, still were able to retain their own culture, which is very, very uh, impressive. So they continued to speak Gaelic even though the English wanted to force them to speak English. Um, they uh, came together in secret to celebrate Masses. There were actually um, priests that would go literally from kitchen to kitchen. They, they, they would celebrate Mass in the homes of the people, in the kitchen, and they would invite their neighbors, and then uh, after Mass was finished, they would serve breakfast to the priest, and then the entire day... They would have a feast. They would make music. They would dance. Um, they would have all sorts of um, uh, plays that they did and and games. 
Um, and so what actually looked like a failure of, well, a failure, like a defeat of Catholicism became its greatest strength. That, that you know, brought people together. Um, and so once the rules were, were uh, loosened a bit, I think that was in 1829. You see, I still have all these dates in my head because I just wrote them down and researched them. So I think in 1829, the rules were... were um, opened up. So, for instance, it was impossible to get a, a, for, a formal job uh, in Ireland if you didn't take an oath in which you would renounce both the authority of the Pope and uh, the belief in the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist. So, two vital pillars of what makes Catholics Catholic. And so, uh, in 1829, that changed. But then you, get, you got the Great Famine, and then slowly, slowly you see the Irish church building up again. And so th that became the story of this second episode. And the more I was writing, the more I was fascinated. It's like, wow, this is such a great story. It's actually way too good of a story to only tell in 20 minutes. So I'm already thinking about doing a follow-up and doing telling, retelling this story properly in a, in a more ambitious way, I, I think, filmically. And then it ends with, uh, so you have the 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 great famine and then then you get the catholic church basically coming back and and uh becoming again very um uh, uh powerful again and that actually prepares the next big uh cat catastrophe which is the internal betrayal by priests uh by religious that abused uh minors and uh basically did every everything contrary to the gospel and that is currently the crisis of the, the Irish church. So that has had, a, uh, as a, one of the results, a accelerated uh, secularization, as well as a secularization of the, of, of the pol political life. So people started to vote differently, and that's why this country that used to be very Catholic, also in its moral choices, in its ethics, in, in its politics, verged to you know the opposite side in, in some respects. And I still believe that these Catholic religious roots are so strong that, you know, things are going to be all right. But it may take a century. But uh, time and again, these Catholic roots are, are, so, are so strong um, that they will help, I think, rebuild things in, in Ireland. At least that's, that's kind of my hope. That, that was the gist of my story. So at the end of the episode, I climb Crog St. Patrick um, to, to go back to the beginning. You know, now that everything seem seemingly crumbles and and of course Ireland in that in that respect is a is like a um, one of the examples of what we see happening all over the Western world Catholicism the church Christianity as such it seems to crumble seems to die out well that may actually be us going back to the roots where did it all begin it began with Saint Patrick climbing this mountain and fasting and praying for 40 days basically learning to rely on God alone that may be our way as well, or, or, or the goal of our pilgrimage is to relearn that. And that, will, that may be the beginning of something new. I don't know if it does, but that's basically the end of the, of the episode. It's me climbing that mountain in the footsteps of St. Patrick. And, and while I was writing, it was like, wow, it, it feels like I filmed everything on purpose to tell this story. Even though the story itself was completely fabricated basically after the fact but i'm pretty proud with the result it's just that only having two days uh to to create this entire episode that was pushing it a little bit too much so i spent most of my weekend writing this story most of monday part of monday and then i did editing on monday afternoon and tuesday and then yesterday wednesday i still had to add all the audio layers so the music very important for for voiceover driven episodes like this plus um all the soundscapes which i didn't have time for in in the first episode but now i added all the birds and the cows and at one point i'm petting a a horse and it's just something that i filmed hey that's a horse and it was very friendly and and uh, and so I, I petted it, but I didn't have any reaction shot. So what I did was I added uh, a little bit of horse sounds before the shot in which you see me petting the horse. And then I have actually, I had one shot where, so sometimes I was recording these English-speaking vlogs. And then at the end of the vlog, I always move my finger to the button to turn off 
the recording. So I took a little bit of that, and it was in a totally different part of one of my walks. Uh, but it was a kind of a rural background, and you see me moving my hand, actually to turn off the recording. But now, in the final edit, with the horse sound effect, it looks as if I'm like startled by this horse, and I'm reaching out to, to, to pet it. It's these funny things like that, where, where pieces that are not related at all are coming together as if they were meant to be. And, and that's kind of the fun aspect of editing. Um, it's just coming up with all these creative solutions and, and making something that was not there. And it's just by storytelling, by editing, by sound design, by music, that you turn that into a, hopefully a story that will appeal to my audience. And uh, I, in, in the next episode, which I'm about to start, I'm going to tell you about a good example of um, a, a, a real documentary that I just watched yesterday on Netflix that actually tells the same story on a much larger scale. And it made me so excited about the work that I do and also made me dream about what's going to be the, my next step. So that's coming up in this uh, next episode, uh, next part, next segment about movies and TV shows. And, of course, I'll talk about The Mandalorian. How do you not like movies? They're predictable. Like, the guy gets the girl and that kid sees dead people and Darth Vader is Luke's father. Not liking movies is like not liking puppies. They're fine. I just get bored and never make it to the end. You know, you need a movie education. You need a movication. I'm going to give it to you. All right. So the documentary that I'm talking about is called The Making of Our Planet by the BBC. I'll talk about that before, uh, but not before I talk about two other things that I want to briefly touch upon on in this segment. The first one is, of course, The Mandalorian on Star Wars. It's breaking all records. So it's now the most watched TV show in the world which is an amazing accomplishment for Disney because they came out of nowhere with Disney Plus and had to conquer basically the world continent by continent. And there is still a massive part of the market that has no access to Disney Plus. Um, I gather from what I see on the web that some people, some Star Wars fans, have found other creative ways, let's put it that way, to to still watch The Mandalorian even though they don't have Disney+. Plus. So there's a lot of chatter, a lot of excitement about this series. And it broke, actually, the previous record, which was held by another TV show that I think is amazing, which is Stranger Things. So Str Stranger Things is now dethroned, and the number one television show on the planet is The Mandalorian, and is well-deserved, because it's an incredible story, very well told, very well filmed, um, and it's breaking new grounds. I think that's what I like the most about it. it this is Disney slash Lucasfilm finally doing something new, instead of just staying in the safe zone of doing iterative things. This fills me with hope for the future of Star Wars. Of course, a lot of people are apprehensive about this upcoming movie, Episode Nine, uh, the, the Rise of Skywalker, because this is going to wrap up the story of the Skywalkers, a nine-episode saga. And it seemed for a long time that Disney didn't know how to how to take the next step and where to where to go, um, and so we've seen the departure of these two screenwriters for Game of Thrones that were actually supposed to write the next trilogy. Ryan Johnson seems to be still working on his trilogy, but there is no news whatsoever. At least he's not letting anything uh, loose about his involvement and when that will happen. So, will we still have a Star Wars future in the next couple of years? And what will they do? Will they just go do prequels, which is the safe thing? Will they move the timeline forward? But if they do, uh, you know, continuation of the Skywalker timeline, in in what respect will that be different from these nine movies? How will it be separate? And can they, I with Solo they try to do something super iterative, and it didn't work for many reasons, even though I liked it personally. And with the animated series, that's all still based on the current Skywalker saga that we know, and it's either prequel or it's filling in the gaps in the storyline. There's no groundbreaking. With The Mandalorian, of course, they still stay within that time frame between uh, the prequels and uh, the original trilogy, 
No, actually, I should say this is between the original trilogy and the sequels. Even getting confused with all these prequels and sequels. Um, so it, this happens basically five years after the return of the Jedi, and it's still in the same universe, even though it's in the outer fringes of that universe. But it tells a story in a totally different way. This is, you know, it, it, trying out new genres. Uh, it's a very different pacing, very different music. I'm not personally very very happy with that music but a lot of fans love it so uh but it is still quintessential star wars and that is what is so surprising about the mandalorian it 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 is star wars and yet it is a story unlike anything else we've seen so far in the star wars universe so i think this is going to be super interesting i'm recording um a, a commentary on every episode, except for this week. I just couldn't find the time. Uh, I've watched the third episode once. Don't think I have enough ideas yet about how to review it. So maybe tonight I'll record something, and another, otherwise I'll just have to record it on Friday, and I'll just li- be a little bit behind. The, the The question that I'm asking myself is how can I add something to what other people are already doing? That's kind of always the trick is when you're in media – You always want to bring value, and if uh, there are so many podcasts, I mean, SQPN has a Star Wars podcast where they go in depth about all the um, kind of religious elements, and it's uh, it's got uh, Angela Celia. Oh my gosh! Don't record podcasts early in the morning. Um, Cialana, she's she's a huge uh, Star Wars expert, um, and. Especially her the her review of um, the Mandalorian culture in the Clone Wars and how it relates to the story uh, of the Mandalorian in Episode Three. That's knowledge that I don't have. I haven't watched the Clone Wars, so I can't really um, rely on on let's say an extensive Star Wars knowledge. So. I don't want to do another one of those reviews where, and then this happens, and then that happens, and that wasn't that cute, that wasn't that cool. Uh, so maybe I'll just focus on on uh, narrative elements because that's kind of what I'm used to do doing, even for for my work as a priest in the parish. Like a homily is always taking an existing story, the gospel and Bible stories. And analyzing it and and finding those gems and applying them to, you know, our lives. And that, I think, should be the way to approach Star Wars in my way. And, and trying to find these elements, because I'm good at structural analysis, but then also trying to apply them or, I don't know, talk a little bit about how these elements can teach us. Because ultimately, Star Wars is mythology, so it's supposed to teach us something about life. It's not just entertainment even though oh, it is very entertaining but it is meant to be a mythology and i think there are in the mandalorian it, it depends on the episode but there are uh, quite a few mythological elements that maybe can be related to you know choices in our own life um the second thing that i wanted to review here is a, a series on netflix that i knew nothing about but it, it has been a long time since i'd done uh, since I've done a, a true binge-watching session. This is a series about eight episodes. I think it's called Living With Yourself. And I had just seen it in my timeline on Facebook once, and I just read the header, the the, the title of the article, and it said uh, that it was great. So I start watching that, and I'm hooked. Immediately, first episode, I'm so intrigued, and then I binge-watched the entire thing over four days. And... Uh, watched the final episode of the first season yesterday <laughs> and wow that was really unexpected um i'm going to include a mild spoiler from the first episode so if you really want to check this out yourself let me just give you a non-spoiler uh overall assessment this is great storytelling it is not for children uh, there are some you know, elements in the story, nothing super explicit, but still uh, a little bit more for mature audiences. So beware of that. But um, uh, it's still a really, really good, kind of a bit of a science fiction type of story. Feels a lot like 
this could have been a Philip K. Dick story. That's, but it's done, executed really, really well. And so, well, <laughs> proof is that I've been binge-watching this because I just couldn't stop watching the next episode because, like, <gasps> what's going to happen? Um, it's got a lot of um, a storytelling that uh, is asynchronous, which is always, I love I love it when they do that. So you see something happening, and it's usually a uh, like a follow-up on what you saw in the previous episode, and then you're made to believe that something is going to happen, and then after a few minutes, it's like 24 hours earlier, and then you see the lead-up, or you may see the same thing that you saw in the previous episode, but told from the perspective of one of the other characters, and that changes your perception of what what you thought was going on. And I always love it when, when stuff like that happens. It's kind of like Star Wars, what the prequels did to the existing trilogy. It's like you, you get so much more information that once you rewatch the story that you thought you knew, it gives you new insights. Well, this, this first season does that all the time. So that's my spoiler-free uh, assessment. Now, for a little bit of a teaser, this is happening in the first half of the first episode. So... The show is not about this. It's about the consequences. But in case you don't want to listen to this, just fast forward a couple of minutes. So um, it tells the story about this guy who is disillusioned, burned out. Um, he has no joy in his life anymore. He's married, but they don't have children, and they've been trying to conceive, but... It, doesn't work so he's got he has to go through this fertility treatment and doesn't want to on his work you, you just see someone who's burned out on life he has no no energy anymore and everything seems to go wrong a little bit like the main character of fight club the movie you know at the beginning where it's just the same kind of a, a loser <laughs> at least that's what you think at first and so at work he's got this other colleague who's very much like him but then all of a sudden one day comes back to work and is super energetic has a ton of ideas has been completely transformed it's still the same guy but he something changed and um after a little bit of inquiry he discovers that that guy went to a spa um and then he came back a changed man it's a very expensive uh treatment fifty thousand dollars but he says you're no, you're not going to be the same anymore. It's only by invitation, so I'll give you, I'll give you the address, and you go there, and you will not be the same. So that's what he does, and he ends up in this very, you know, rundown shopping center, um, and it's this tiny little store. And at first, doesn't seem to be, you know, it seems to be like a band, abandoned storefront. So he keeps on knocking, and then the door is opened by to guys who seem at first seem to be kind of oriental, I don't know, Korean, Japanese, it's kind of unclear. And then he goes through this door and all of a sudden he's in this super fancy, you know, hip environment and they tell him that they will take uh, some DNA samples. They're basically, the promise is we're going to rewrite your DNA. We're going to take out all the stuff that makes you miserable and we're going to fix your DNA and turn you into the most successful version um, of you. And so he is put under, and when he wakes up, he's in a plastic bag buried in the ground. And that's like, ah, I'm dying in here. And so he gets out of this plastic bag and finds himself in the middle of the woods, and and, and there are fresh graves all around him. And so you're like, like I was watching that. I was like, what is going on? And then... He's the he's only wearing a diaper, and and he's completely disoriented and he doesn't know what happened and it's totally not what they promised him, so he has to walk for hours and hours in the middle of the night to get back home in that diaper and then he sneaks into home the door is locked and and then he knows where the spare key is so he enters his home and then he hears himself, and he discovers and this is a spoiler that. Actually, the whole trick of that spa is they cloned him. And they tried to kill the ex the existing version, the, the kind of the failed version of himself. But it didn't work because for some reason the, the, the medication was wrong or something like that. And so he survived basically his own death. And now he returns home to see that his successful clone has taken his place. And the entire 
rest of the season is about living with yourself because that clone has all the memories. And so this is why it's such a Philip K. Dick type of story. Has all the memories of his previous self. Doesn't even know that he's a clone. And then what does this, what happens when these two basically have to fight for their place in the world? And what does it do to the relationship? To um, It's... It's really, really, really good storytelling. It's very funny at times. It also asks a lot of moral stories, uh, moral questions, sorry. Um, and it's it's just so unexpected. Every episode is like, whoa, what had just happened? And and that is, uh, that is you know, what I love about this first season. Um, the only downside is it's only eight episodes, and the episodes are pretty short. But wow, I was uh, I couldn't stop watching this. So highly recommend it. All right, end of spoiler time. Welcome back if you skipped this first part. I'm now going to talk about the last uh, thing on Netflix that I would like to briefly review. <clears throat> that is a documentary about a documentary. Um, I, you know that I'm a fan of making off stories and uh, that's one of the only reasons that I keep buying Blu-rays from time to time and why I still keep some of my DVDs, because of the director's commentaries. I love to learn from the pros, and I've, I think I've learned a lot in my own work by just listening to the stories of how movies, documentaries, TV shows that I like ha- were made. And it's kind of learning by osmosis. You, you, you look at, at the film... And at the same time, you hear, you know, in order to film this, we did this and this and that. And I'm just taking mental notes. It's like, oh, that's how they do it. That's how I learned a lot about editing, about sound design, about the power, uh, how music is used to uh, reinforce emotions or even add emotions when there are no emotions in the original material. So a lot of, a lot of these tricks that I learned by looking at making off movies or uh, documentaries or listen to uh, making off uh, director's commentaries... That's kind of what helped me uh, become a filmmaker myself. So I was browsing through uh, the newest material on Netflix, and I saw this uh, one-hour documentary. It's a little bit longer than one hour. Uh, and it was called The Making of... No, the Behind the Scenes of Our Planet. And Our Planet is one of those beautiful BBC uh, documentaries about nature and... Uh, they already, f- and it's with David Attenborough, you know, this fantastic guy with an amazing voice who does all these nature documentaries for the BBC. And they'd done this years ago, a very successful series, and they recently uh, created a whole new bunch of of documentaries, but it was all filmed with the latest technology. So it's all 4K, uh, it's done with the latest drones, uh, diving equipment, um, amazing uh, production. I was only a company like the BBC can pull this off because it's both you know, the highest production value that you can find on the planet, but it's also the best storytelling. It's so riveting. And you, d- you see the world in its most beautiful, most fascinating form. But this documentary tells you how they do it, how they make these incredible, Im- how they film these incredible images and these shots that will just make you go like, oh, I can't believe how beautiful the world actually is. Um, but it, 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 what is so fascinating is that a, a lot of these scenes are filmed with mobile phones or just B-roll cameras. So it's basically uh, a small camera um, and while the main crew is setting up equipment, that there's this other person who's just taking a few shots, doing a, a few impromptu uh, interviews, like, so what happens now? And But you go behind the scenes of how they... Fil- and normally in, in the BBC documentaries, you, you see nothing of the making off. This is not... You have documentaries where the makers are part of the story. So it's participatory documentaries. I love that style because that's what I've been doing for a couple of years now. It's like I am in the story. You see me walking there. You see me filming. You hear me asking the questions. The BBC, very classic television. You only hear David Attenborough. So the great blue whale on his hunt for his next prey, blah, blah, blah. And (laughs) meanwhile, you see this just this 
incredible uh, imagery. And then oftentimes the story, uh, because you can't really direct nature. It's not that you can write you know, dialogue for the blue whale or the orangutan that you're going to film. So they usually do a lot of research beforehand and then based on what they expect to go film they will write this story and they will also um, figure out what kind of shots they need so you can go into the jungle which they film and it's oh my goodness i would never film orangutans because the entire jungle is one big pool of mud where they go sometimes they're waist deep into the mud carrying these massive cameras so they have these professional 4k cameras um like the total opposite of how I work because I work with the, this diminutive M50 Canon camera with a tiny little pancake lens. It's all lightweight. I, I try to keep everything as lightweight as possible. These guys are carrying around cameras that must weigh at least 20 to 30 kilograms. And that's without the tripod. The tripod is just as big as the camera. The reason of the weight is they also have these massive uh, lenses uh, that are very light sensitive so they can zoom in for hundreds of meters and still get a great you know close-up of a polar bear or a orangutan in the trees but then they have to carry all that equipment um, while wading through the mud while getting stung by all sorts of you know poisonous animals and at one point you see the cameraman just lying on the on the ground he, he needs to take a couple of days off and his legs are completely covered in blisters and then this this his entire skin is now crackly and it looks like he's been roasted turns out he was allergic to you know poisonous plants that he waded through and the only way to um, heal is by not moving and getting exposure to the sun so the the sacrifices that these guys make to film the shots there's this other sequence which is absolutely flabbergasting and actually the documentary starts with it which was another learning point for me they start with one of their most exciting sequences and then they tell the entire uh, story at the end of the documentary so you're like oh i don't what was happening there so you see basically a film crew boarding up inside a wooden shed and they're, you know, a- adding extra wooden planks and, and barricading the, the, the door. And then there is this one Russian biologist who says, oh, I think we are surrounded by zombies. And then they, they film through a hole in the, in the shed and you see all these, these eyes light up and you hear these weird sounds like, <laughs> what is going on? And then at the end of the documentary, they pay it off, and turns out they're surrounded by walruses, and 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 it's unbelievable. You have to watch it for yourself. I'm not going to spoil too much about it, but it's just so incredible storytelling. I mean, I was, I, 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 this is definitely worth its own series. Is how they film these nature documentaries. And I have so much appreciation now for what the BBC pulled off there. And also was really invigorating because I saw these crews wading through the mud, going to all these extreme places. And um, the type of storytelling that they did, because this uh, documentary really has a message. It wanted to show the uh, effects of climate change in the, in the parts of the world where you normally wouldn't go yourself. So it was also chronicling how quickly things are changing for animals in, you know, these, these Arctic regions or in the middle of the forests. And, um, and, and so it, it tries to educate the, the viewer, like the choices that we make in terms of, of, of uh, and this, this has been one of the major points of Pope Francis, uh, you know, uh, if, if we continue this, this, the type of consumerism that we're currently uh, involved in, we need four or five planets. This is unsustainable, and it is destroying um, the planet. It's also destroying the habitat of all these animals. And so the BBC tried to show, instead of telling, this is what is currently happening. Um, and that's the kind of storytelling that I thought was riveting, and that I'm also... Ah, it touched a nerve here. I, I've been doing television for 10 years now, and my show has always been a bit like this epi- this podcast. It's been very eclectic, and it talks, you know, every, every episode is totally different from the other. And I rarely do these longer 
narrative uh, storylines. Ireland was an exception, like doing a two-parter. Um, uh, Scotland, which is currently in production or in post-production, was another experiment in doing these long-form stories where it's really a, a, a trip. It's a tra- it's a travel documentary. Um, but I've I've noticed that. If you if you if I keep doing this eclectic style of programming, where you know one day I'll film uh, a documentary about Gregorian chant in a parish, and then I'll go film some, you know, um, efforts in a local place where they're trying to help the poor, etc. You know, all these topics on itself are worthy of attention, and there are stories to be told. The thing is you have to tell these stories in 20 minutes and then it's over and then it disappears. And there is not really an impetus for someone who's seen one episode to say, oh, I'm going to watch the next episode as well. The, o- the only reason may be because they like me. And I'm, this is the, I do participatory documentary so they know that, well, it's still the same guy who's going to show up in the next episode as well. But they don't know what it's going to be about. And I noticed that, that uh, two weeks ago I had my episode about Ireland but then last week, we had an episode that was completely unrelated, uh, which was me walking to raise money for charity uh, in the summertime and walking for, for four days, and I interviewed two other people. That, for me, completely broke the narrative of the TV show. It was such a different story and didn't really come out the way I thought it would come out. And so, ew, I was like... And and then now I I fi- just finished uh, the next episode about Ireland, which is currently in post production, and will be aired next week. And then it picks up where I left the viewer two weeks ago, and I was like, "But I want to take people with me." Uh, that's what I like about vlogging. It's just being able to follow someone through life and through his or her adventures, and and I, that's the kind of television, that's the kind of storytelling that I want to do. So, and I, I had already been thinking a lot about changing the way I approach TV and also approach m- my vlogging and, and going more towards long form. Um, it, it's basically why we binge watch. It's like we want to see what happens next. And I want to be able to, to, to do that same storytelling in, in what I produce instead of doing just, oh, this could be interesting, that could be interesting. That is much more what you do with radio. That's what I do with this podcast. This podcast doesn't want to be like this ongoing epic story that will take you everywhere. I used to do that, by the way. I started not with a show like this. This is more background stuff. You know, you put this on during your commute or if you have an hour where you're, uh, I don't know, have to sort out the laundry. (laughs) Then you listen to this kind of stuff and it doesn't really matter that it's haphazard because it's just background. But I used to have a show called The Catholic Insider and... Those were documentaries. Those were audio documentaries. So I'd take people, for instance, on va- during my vacation, I would record these episodes. It was audio only. I would be in Spain. And while we were visiting all these different places, I would tell the, you know, the next chapter of this journey through Spain. And it was so much fun to... So what I did was I, I did a lot of research beforehand. Then we visited this one church or cathedral, and I could tell about it and record audio and I don't know just paint a picture a mental picture um, in the minds of my listeners and I, I and then once I was back home I would have six or seven episodes and uh, so every week there would be a new podcast from Spain and it would just be like a month and a half of storytelling in Spain and I love that I so love doing that and I miss it because I well you can only do so many things in 24 hours per day. But I realized that that old form of audio storytelling is what set my shows apart from all the other podcasters. There were not many people, and are still, there are not many people who are doing that type of audio. The Walk, which is my weekly show where I literally take you for a walk, is very much like a remnant of that old style of storytelling, even though... It's mostly a brain dump and there's hardly anything very exciting happening. I'm just walking outside. But just the fact that I'm walking outside, you hear the rain, you hear the traffic, it's in stereo. So you kind of, if you close your eyes, you're in my part of the world. Um, That is still, I think, 
if I would just sit in front of the microphone and give you the same content, it wouldn't be the same. So I'm, th I'm more and more thinking, if this is what I'm good at, if this is what sets what I do apart from other productions and other talented TV makers and audio makers and podcasters, why don't I focus on that? Because that is my strength. And this adds something. It comes back to what I previously mentioned. I want to add value instead of just duplicating what other people can do very well. Um, so that's kind of currently whirling around in my, in my mind. And, uh, well, I've already filmed half of the next TV season beforehand. So this is not going to be a change I'm going to do at the beginning of next year. But definitely after the summertime, I need to come up with something different. And uh, I'm looking forward to it because, well, you only get somewhere in life if you dare to leave your comfort zone and embark on a new adventure and trying to challenge yourself. That's how I ever got into running marathons. I'd never done that before, but I wanted to challenge myself and it changed everything. And so that, that is what I want to apply to my media work as well. And with that, it is time for The Peculiar Bunch. <laughs> Catholics rock! Here at The Peculiar Bunch, we're always happy to tell you everything you always wanted to know about Catholics and Christians and their traditions, but you were afraid to ask. Catholics can be a peculiar bunch. No meat on Friday. Oh, meat? What do they eat? Light bulbs? Well, today I want to talk about um, my Advent resolutions. Man, you guys got more crazy rules than Blockbuster Video. So Advent is just around the corner. Last Sunday we celebrated the Feast of Christ King, which is the last Sunday of the liturgical year. So the church is, has a very different way of looking at time than we have in you know daily life. So the beginning of the new year is Advent. Why? Because Advent are the four weeks uh, that lead up to Christmas, and that's basically where everything in history changed. It starts with the conception of, of Jesus by the Virgin Mary, visited by the angel, and then leads up to the birth of Christ in Bethlehem. And so that's why the beginning of the new liturgical year is Advent. And Advent is one of those times. We have uh, two of them, actually, currently. There used to be more of these in, uh, in older times. Times of preparation. Times of uh, living a little bit more of a, a more restrained life. So uh, the other period of, of preparation, of course, is uh, Lent. Uh, Lent has fasting, has um, uh, prayer, almsgiving. Advent is slightly less um, austere in a certain way, but we're still encouraged to uh, take use this time to reflect upon our life, on the choices that we make, and make different choices, learn to live a different lifestyle, to prepare for the advent of, of Jesus. And so it's always a good idea to make some resolutions before you enter a, a time like this. And for, for Lent, uh, a lot of us do have these these uh, ideas that we want to implement. Uh, we want to, you know, take fasting more seriously, spend more time in prayer. For Advent, it's a bit more difficult because the world around us is already switching to Christmas time as we speak. Like, everything is already Christmas, except if you live in the Netherlands where we first uh, have to deal with St. Nicholas, but that's for kids. But all the Christmas decorations are already out. And, in fact, I already have my Christmas tree in... Um, what I now call the common room. It's a room upstairs. I have this this fake Christmas tree. Um, and instead of uh, uh, taking it apart at the end of the Christmas season, I just brought the whole thing to the attic. Um, and now I brought it back to the first floor and didn't want to go bring it downstairs because it's a very unwieldy and heavy tree. Um you know, one of the rooms where I also do the gaming and uh, where I watch TV, um, I wanted to have that feel, the, I wanted to give it the feeling of uh, the common room in one of the Harry Potter houses, so the Gryffindor common room. And um, so that's where I put the tree. Um, the reason that I already put up the Christmas tree is because during Advent, I don't want to be busy with, you know, 
mounting the Christmas tree and getting in the Christmas. I, I want to be able to focus on on Advent itself. So one of the uh, one of my resolutions for Advent has been to focus again on my priorities. Uh, and those priorities include prayer, include um, making more room, literally more room for Christ in my life. Um, and I can only do that if I refocus on the, the most important things in my life. And so these past few days where I was working 12 to 14 hours per day on these Ireland uh, episodes were an, a great example of how I do not want to live my life. Because it's, it's actually destructive. It is so much work in so little time that I have no time to eat properly. I have no time for physical exercise. I hardly have time to sleep. And when I sleep, I don't sleep well because in my mind I'm still editing, still thinking about, okay, what am I going to do tomorrow? Because you've got that deadline. This morning I realized a deadline is called a deadline for a reason. Because if it's <laughs> you're half dead when you reach that line, and that's basically what has been happening to me. For Advent, I've decided to step on the brakes and to outsource as much as possible, and to just not try to be too ambitious when it comes to work, so that I can ease into Christmas. So one of the things, and it was pretty bold for me to do that, was I told everyone here uh, at the office that I, was, I am going to take a week off before Christmas. Normally, uh, most people have some time off after Christmas, um, which, by the way, never worked for me because after Christmas, immediately you've got all these, oh, there's such a whole bunch. I'm already like resenting the amount of liturgical stuff that is waiting for me after Christmas. It just goes on and on and on. And uh, the, one of the reasons that I resent it is not because I don't like to celebrate, uh, you know, mass or anything, but it's because the parish is now so big. There are two parishes merged into one region, and it's massive. And, uh, and every week I've got to go to a different community, and the times keep changing. Like uh, the in January, I've got a couple of Sundays where they've put mass on 10 o'clock. That means that normally, I, my life used to be super um, consistent. There was always mass at half past nine, and then the second mass at 11 o'clock. So I could be celebrating the Eucharist in two parish churches, two communities. And usually there are different villages, and so it's not multiple churches in one city. It's all over the place. And, these, and, and we only have three priests for 15 churches. So you want to enable the communities to celebrate the Eucharist Eucharist as often as possible, but I've just noticed that for the next couple of months, they put me so often on 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 Sundays where mass starts all of a sudden at ten thirty or at ten o'clock, and it's just like how selfish of these churches, and I have no other words for it, to just claim that time so that instead of celebrating and serving two communities with the Eucharist, I can only serve one, and it's all over the place, and it and. So there are places now, there are churches where I only come like once every three months. So you're basically the magician of the month, you know. That's how it feels. It feels so utilitarian. It's no longer about having a bond with your parishioners. It's about just, you come and consecrate a thousand hosts so that we can do without you for the next couple of weeks. I know it's not like that. It's not meant to. Right? That's the, basically the result. And it it gives me the feeling that I no longer have roots in the parish, and it's that's a that's a slippery slope, and I'm very worried about that situation, and I can tell that it's not good for me as well. It, it just makes you feel that you don't belong anymore uh, anywhere, and so the um, the one of my resolutions in, for Advent is to think to take time to ask God if this is what He wants me to do. And if this is still a match with my vocation, because I certainly did not want to become a priest to just run around and drive around like a madman uh, and, and not having time anymore to properly be where I am and to uh, bond with the people and to really be a pastor. I want to be a shepherd. 
But a shepherd, according to Jesus, has to know the names of his sheep. Well, if I'm just if I keep running around like this, I don't know any of these sheep anymore, nor do they know me. And so it's uh, discernment. What is wise? That is going to be the main theme of this Advent time, and it's just not even four weeks to Christmas. But the reason that I wanted to take a week off before Christmas is so that I have more time to think about these things. One, one of the dangers of putting too much work on your plate is that you don't give yourself enough time to reflect, to evaluate, and to discern what you should do. And uh, I, I believe that, especially for my life as a priest, that is very vital. I'm supposed to do God's will instead of chasing a career or just following, you know, the, the fad of the, of the week. Um, but I, I, more and more, I'm starting to be convinced that this is also true for the way in which I am a priest. I'm a parish priest. Um, I need to take time to evaluate what I do in the parish and, if necessary, take steps to prevent myself from becoming basically this burned-out uh, guy who's just running around and doesn't feel like he is really contributing to people's lives anymore. Uh, but it's also very tricky because I'm not um, I'm not in control of the situation. I don't choose where to celebrate the Eucharist. Uh, the, it's all the local churches that make these choices. So there is something inherently conflicting. And, and uh, the thing that I'm struggling with right now is and that's why I need time to think and to pray, is what are the things that I have no influence on? And so you basically have to let go. The things that are out of your control, um, it's not worth fighting because you will never win what is out of your control. Um, So then you have to think, well, what is going to be my mindset? How am I going? I can't change the world, but how can I deal with it? Um, So that is a question that I have. So in, in... what areas do I have to let go of how I would do things? Because, you know, I'm, I'm not the main pastor. I'm not in, in charge of that. But I still suffer the consequences of choices that other people make. So how much do I let go and I try to, you know, step into a different mindset? Uh, or, or am I called to make changes and to also tell other people and to maybe go talk with my bishop and, uh, and, and discern, well, maybe God is asking me to not accept the situation and to make different choices. It's a very, very difficult thing. Um, but I feel how right now, because I'm overburdened with work, that there is no room in my life to make a proper discernment. And so if you are conflicted about something, but you don't feel that you have the time to think about it or to ask God even, what do you want me to do? And that takes time because God doesn't usually give you these instant solutions like, hey, pour some water over this and it will turn into a fantastic new solution for your life. That's not, that's not the way the force works and that's not the way God works. God always asks you to become open and to create to make room so that he can whisper over time what he wants you to do and so discernment almost always without exception uh, asks for uh, availability and so i need to create that availability and and for me advent is going to be that time of the year where i try to create room and it means sacrifices it means i have to let go of a number of things i hope to do before Christmas time and sometimes force myself to do previous years. I'm not going to do that. Same with, with podcasting and vlogging and gaming. Sometimes I just have to let go. I'd love to do these gaming sessions and stream it to YouTube every evening. But if I would do that when I'm still working these 12, 14 hour shifts every day, um, I'd kill myself. <laughs> that's not, that's definitely not what God wants me to do, nor what you want me to do. So um, it's, it, for me, Advent is going to be a time of rebalancing myself. Most of all is setting course on God's road for me. And uh, in order to figure out what he wants, I need to make room for him. So that's my plans for Advent. When did you become an expert in thermonuclear astrophysics? Last night. The packet. The extraction theory papers? Am I the only one who did the reading? I don't know how I do it, 
But I did find some time to do some reading, and it was mostly while folding laundry. I hadn't folded laundry for three weeks, and so I had hours of work sorting out all the the black stuff and that's kind of the downside of wearing black the upside is you never have to choose what to wear the downside is all these socks look uh, look alike but they're not entirely alike because i bought them in different stores and so he's like okay which black sock is that and mm, and i'm very you know crazy about that i did these socks need to be matching i can't be the guys like oh i'll just they're all black so who doesn't care now i feel it if one sock is different like right now i have a sock that is goes up like halfway on the, on the how do you say that it's, it's a little bit longer and the other sock is short and it's because i ended up with the two socks that are not definitely not a pair and i'm like okay well, i'll just put these on but for the entire day i was like ah my socks are wrong. There is something wrong with the socks. And so I take a lot of, I put a lot of effort into sorting my socks. And meanwhile, <laughs> I was listening to an audiobook by Cory Doctorow, um, a very prolific writer. And this is one of his first novels that he ever wrote. And it's called um, Down and Out in the Magic Kingdom. He reads it himself. And this was written, I think, in 2003. So it's a very old book. I think he recorded the audiobook version much later. Um, and it's really not well recorded. It's clearly done on a, I don't know, a, like one of these dictation devices. So the sound is over-modulating quite a bit. He just, you know, sometimes he misreads. And then he just stops and rereads the phrase. Normally, with, you know, we're so spoiled by Audible and stuff like that. They just take out those those moments where they do an edit of of the audiobook but in this case not not so so you hear him make mistakes and it's like oh wait a minute i should emphasize that word so let's go back but it's it feels very much like the author is just reading his i don't know his manuscript the story is quite riveting and uh, i was triggered by the cover of the book where you see the the, the disney castle and it takes place actually in disney world but it, the, the, the twist is it takes place in Disney World in the future, like, I don't know, 100 years from now. The world is in disarray. <laughs> What's new in these stories? So there's been you know, major catastrophes and um, only part of, the, of, of humanity is left. And there, are, there is a community that now lives in Disney World. And Disney World is still running. But at the same time, there's a community of inhabitants that that keep it running. I'm not sure if Disney itself is still involved, but they uh, they take pride in uh, maintaining all these old attractions. So this book works best if you've been there because it talks about all these familiar places. But then, of course, it's in a very decrepit state because well, 100 years have passed and, well, the world has changed. But you see these, these, these groups of people volunteering to, for instance... Uh, keeping the Hall of uh, Presidents alive, which is, a, you know, the big animatronic uh, thing that Disney built when he was constructing Disney World. I think it was part, wasn't it part of Epcot? I'm not a very knowledgeable Disney fan, but I, I have visited uh, Disney World um, many years ago. And so I do recognize a lot of the places that they talk about. And it's funny because this was written in 2003. Even uh, between... That time and now, 2019 was, of course, science fiction territory back then. Um, some things that he describes having survived these 100 years have already changed in the meantime. But then there are these rival factions in, uh, in the story. And some of them want to innovate and the others want to preserve. And so it's this, this conflict between... And uh, there is also this very weird... Uh, it kind of harkens back to um, Living With Yourself that I reviewed earlier on in the movies TV segment. There is this new technology that enables you to go into deadheading. Deadheading is basically you, you do a download of your entire brain and all your memories. They store it on a computer and then you say you want to, you're like, I don't like this time of, of history. Uh, wake me up 300 years from now. What they would basically do is they create a clone 300 years from now, and they re-download your, uh, your memories, your, the entire uh, uh, contents of your brain into that new clone. And then the old clone is just uh, disintegrated. So there's no, basically there's no death anymore. Um, and then uh, 
there, there is a moment in the book where they actually ask that question, but are you still the same? This clone, is that really you? So it's basically, as a theologian, I would say this is the question about the soul. Is this still the same soul? And is the soul, can you reduce that to just the contents of your brain? I would say no, but anyway. So it asks a lot of questions about identity, um, but doesn't really go in depth. The story is very fast-paced. It's a quick read, um, and it's not always very well done. Uh, this is definitely a book that I think would benefit from a rewrite. Um, and at the end of the audiobook, Cory Doctorow says that he's thinking about a prequel, I think. So how did the world turn to the state that we find it in the beginning of this book? I don't know if you've ever, he's ever written it, but I have to give it to him. He's a good writer. It, it's, uh, it's not literature, but it propels the story forward quite fast. There are some weaker moments in the story, but all in all, I was fascinated. And the, and the book works best because it takes place in Disney World. And so, well, that's what you... That you can relate to it if you've been there. Um, and with that, I think it is time to wrap up the show. I've been talking for about an hour. I had some more uh, notes to talk about. Especially, Ronald D. Moore talked uh, recently about going back to Deep Space Nine and uh, creating another season. It's not going to happen because he works for Sony. Spoiler. But it's still an interesting read. The link to the article is in the show notes on Tridio.com. I'll be back next week, hopefully, if I'm still alive. Thanks for listening. And thanks to my patrons. I'll record a special episode of my other show, The After Show, for you right after recording this. So if you're a patron, check that out in your feed. And if you are not, go over to patreon.com slash fatherroderick and uh, become a sponsor. And then you'll get access to that show as well. I'll see you next week. Take care.